Another episode of Legacy on the Clock Tower. I'm your host, Andrew. Plus, we call it Legacy of the Clock Tower. <laughs> Today, I'm rudely interrupted by. Hey, I'm Wildstar. Uh, is not going to be joining us today, so it's just Wildstar and myself. We're going to continue to bicker on what the name of this show is while we talk about an ongoing campaign on the Pandemonium Institute's Twitch channel. This, as we've mentioned in the past, is a 10-episode run where Tyler, one of the regular storytellers, has created a consistent campaign that a group of common players are playing week over week. And that campaign is finding out the history of Ravensburg Bluff. We have finished game three of Act One. The next game, of course, will be game four, but that'll be the start of Act Two. Okay. So typically what our format here is, I'll explain the different legacy mechanics, and then we'll go into a bit of a game rundown. I think this one's going to work a little different, and if you saw the game, you'll understand why. The two are pretty well intertwined. Before we get into that, um, Tyler introduced something before the game started to a couple of our players. We, as players, did not necessarily hear this unless it applied to us. So Tyler pulled a couple people aside and introduced Bloodlines. Bloodlines are a mechanic where a player achieved something in a previous game, and because they achieved that, they can choose to take the role that they were playing as and put that on a future script. You can, as a player, only do this once. The implications of that aren't apparent yet. Uh, Tyler just gave the players the option to bloodline a character. They could choose no, in which case that character may or may not appear on a future script. Uh, that wasn't entirely clear, uh, but you could only choose to do this once, and both of the players that got the choice both did it. So Andrew P. and Harmony were both asked if they wanted to bloodline their roles in a previous game. Andrew P. chose to bloodline the Pit Hag, and Harmony chose to bloodline the Oracle. So we do know at some point in each act, that character will appear on a script. So we'll see each of those at some point during Act 2 and during Act 3. I'm more curious as to what triggered it, because I have absolutely no idea what goals they would have achieved. Uh, this happened during Game 2, which was the game with the cadre mechanic, but neither Andrew P. nor Harmony was responsible for completing their cadre's goals. So it couldn't have been that, and I don't have any idea what goal they could have achieved. I'm trying to think about significant things that happened during that game. Andrew P. was the only minion to guess damsel. That could have been what what they did. <laughs> I guess damsel. I just wasn't a minion. Correct. There's no way to know. I'm not saying that definitely was it. It's just, uh, it could have been it. Um, I don't know what Harmony could have done. It was also mentioned that we have only one bloodline per campaign. Which means, I guess, that more players will have the opportunity to bloodline things later. Um, I don't, it feels less valuable after this point because right now we're solidifying two appearances of the Pit Hag and Oracle. But if it occurred during Act Two, it would only cause one in the third act. Also, I just noticed he mentioned there was. One bloodline per campaign, which implies the existence of multiple campaigns. 
don't think this was deliberate. I I don't more think campaigns? I don't think he's doing more campaigns. I don't think he's planning that far ahead at least. If we eventually see it, I don't think it's already been planned. Honestly, we could like play the same one again and watch different things happen and uh maybe I would win. Uh, <laughs> I think it would be interesting to, for some of the mechanics to play it again knowing that they exist like the game one mechanic. For sure. I mean, we were hoping to actually see that come back up, but it still hasn't come up. So, yeah, it, is, it would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. So another thing that happened before the game even started uh, is some Whisper Channels were named after some of our players. So Kohov and Kev have each received Whisper Channels named after themselves. All right, so some of the players have been very diligent in having Whispers with a lot of people or having a lot of Whispers, so we wanted to reward them with personalized Whisper Channels for the campaign and those may adapt and turn into other things as ravenswood bluff is founded more i hope they enjoy it i got a chat hidden still <gasps> wait what we're special kev oh my god tyler does mention here that the channels might have a future effect or at least he hints to it so there will probably be some sort of evolution on that that's neat i i have no idea what would happen with it but Seems like uh, Kohav and Kevkev both have have a uh, a fun little side quest that they're on. So now the main new legacy mechanic that got introduced in this game is based on the game A Day to Remember. So I'm just going to let Tyler explain this uh, because he explains the rules about what this is. All right. So um, this script is uh, the mechanics in play here is going to be based off something that you may have seen before. We, we have done a script by a, f- a friend of ours named Bohr called A Day to Remember. A Day to Remember is a doomsayer script in which the town has one day to solve the puzzle of who's the demon. They get the use of this doomsayer to whittle down the candidates and make uh, confirmation train, chains, trust chains. There is a twist in this particular game. Oh, boy. Uh, well, this is... The players are in a time loop. So... Uh, they will go through, we're going to do this very quickly, they will have to doomsay within a minute, two minutes of each other, and then they'll get an execution. They will not initially know that they are in a time loop, and then we will say, the game is over, and go to sleep. We'll wake them up. Players that have the use of one-time abilities will get the use of that one-time ability again. We can shift certain things around at night. We can tell people different information than they would have gotten, because it's a whole new first night. It's first night every night. And then we have to be mindful of some of the doomsayer chains we create because that creates trust all along the way and there is a trigger that will then allow the time loop to stop uh, and then that will be the last day the day the time loop ends is the day that decides who wins or who loses one of the other rules of this particular scenario is that if you are mad about there having ever been a previous day or night you may be executed and that will end that particular loop so some information roles or some uh, roles might get information over the course of days. If they say, I got this on day one and this on day two, they can be executed, and that will end that particular loop, and then we'll have to reset. That buys evil some time because once the trigger happens, good is going to have to rely on the information that they have at that point in time. Uh, so this is the main new mechanic that was present in this game. You know, we had a couple things that were introduced that were probably going to affect future games, but the main new mechanic that was introduced here was just that we were going to basically be playing the same game over and over again for some indeterminate amount of time, and that we couldn't mention the fact that we had already been playing this game for each loop. Once the players use the Doomsday mechanic down to five, 
All dead players can choose to invoke a traveler. This is the same mechanic that we saw during game one. So this is a callback to that mechanic. My hunch here is that the previous traveler mechanic we saw was just introducing this idea so that it wasn't new for this game, but we can talk about that more in a little bit. Basically, they have a choice to invoke a traveler. The third traveler that gets invoked is a new character, the Archon, and this traveler is the way that the good team can win the game. Uh, so the good team cannot win until this traveler is brought in and the good team does not know that until the traveler actually appears. Those were the new legacy mechanics. Let's start talking about how they played out. I want to mention between the first two games the script changed only slightly. Uh, for this game the script changed drastically. The entire evil team changed. No evil character remained the same. That could be related to the fact that we got wrecked in game two. We got absolutely destroyed. There are some bits where, oh, it's thematic because the Zombul's here, which was mentioned in Tyler's opener. And we know that, of course, Slayer came from Andrew's ability. There's some that make sense mechanically, like Oracle wouldn't work in this game, but it is a drastic change. And I find that really interesting. I think the reason why we saw such a big change is because it's based on a day to remember. It's a script that sort of needs specific characters. For sure. I think the evil team is the more interesting change. Characters like Mastermind don't feel like they make as much sense here. And there were characters that we had before, like Poisoner, that would have worked just fine. Or even all three of the demons we had. They're boring uh, and all the same in this instance. Imp, Vigor, and Fangu. But, like, it works better than Legion, to be fair. Yeah. The Slayer did show back up on the script from the damsel action in the last game, so that's fun to see. So did the cult leader. I think we theorized that we wouldn't see a cult leader or a virgin because the damsel chose the Slayer and didn't choose the cult leader or the virgin. So that's interesting that the cult leader showed up, but it's nice to see the effect. Uh, from the, we, we got one prediction right, even though I think it was just told to us <laughs> during the last game that it was going to happen. Also predicted the removal of Huntsman Damsel because the damsel was saved. Huntsman wouldn't have functioned in this script, so I don't see in a single day game Huntsman wouldn't have functioned well, I guess, is more accurate. I think it's interesting. We might have ended up stuck with just a damsel if you hadn't been saved, because that would have worked just fine. Oh my god, this game would have been so difficult as a damsel. So hard. Oh, it would have worked with a huntsman and a damsel. Because the huntsman gets to choose on night one. First night, yeah. Wait, that would have worked great. Damsel outs huntsman picks them the next night. Yeah, the damsel could out themselves on day one and just lose the game. But then the time loop starts. So, sure, the evil team that wins. That would have been awesome! <laughs> that had happened i i'm sorry that madeline won game two by using the huntsman ability me too i lost game two that was unnecessary you know what's funny is like we've all been making fun of the fact that huntsman gets to choose night one because why would a huntsman choose before the game even starts like they have no way of knowing i died on night two as a huntsman once but you shouldn't expect that you're going to die it's right so much better for a huntsman to wait at least a day to get a lay of the land uh, before they choose a damsel. This would have been the one situation where it's good that there's no asterisks on Huntsman. Yeah, for sure. The game starts, and as Wildstar had predicted, this is the, the act where we arrive at Ravenswood Bluff, and Tyler gives us a nice long introduction as we enter the area. 
The topic of how to dispose of a demonic force given physical form caused great consternation in the camp. A field autopsy of some of the bodies revealed maggots feasting on twisted organs and black ichor in place of blood. Burials seemed impractical as there was no sanctified ground to speak of, and the locals cautioned against cremation for fear of haunted smoke, suggesting instead to throw the bodies into a pit on the far side of a swamp. This felt like a trap to some of your number, so it was decided that the bodies were to be burned during a fiery sermon by the chaplain. But it must be said that while a preacher may cow a wicked man, they have no sway over a lord of hell. It was hoped that the horrors would end once and for all, but there wasn't even a brief respite. One of the survivors of the initial attack of the demon disappeared, his body replaced in his bedroll by a sodden log shaped like a gnarled old woman clutching her knees. The local guys believed that the hags who spoke curses as their native tongue had been perverted by this place. The sentries had left their posts. It was decided originally that the, those souls killed by the creature should be preserved to be buried on the bluff in honor of their bravery and commitment to the mission. That was until a two-day dead corporal was caught milling around the cook's tent, groaning about being famished. While there was some gallows comedy in a lieutenant earnestly ordering his former charge to lie back down and resume her existence beyond the mortal coil, it became clear that bodies turned shambling hungry dead was a liability for the group, and they were buried with stone cairns erected on top of them. During the burial, the gravedigger's shovel hit a wooden casket, the exhumation of which revealed a grinning skeleton clutching a piece of vellum. Without the chronicler, good people of the letters were hard to find, but the form and script on the scroll looked remarkably similar to the traveler's tale the chronicler had been deciphering in his tent. As the expedition plotted its course to the bluff, the camp had found itself splintering into factions, with some believing that they had all been damned for their sins, and the Ravenswood was at best a purgatory, an opportunity to repent, while others believed that the god in Anolni didn't live here, and that they needed to honor the god that dwelled in the Ravenswood by the sea, while some said whether it be god or devil that attacked their comrades, they had every intention of killing the bastard. The locals, for their part, had made themselves scarce when it was decided the bodies would be burned, hearing dark tidings from the men. The squabbles in the camp turned to brawls, and order could only be maintained by dead daily executions as accusations of treachery kept the fire stoked. The contingent of hardy and courageous men and women who had set out so many months ago wouldn't recognize the sorry lot that had found the ruins atop Ravenswood Bluff. Initially, they didn't even realize they'd found anything at all, but it became clear that the stones here were in long rectangles, foundations devoured by the feckin' forest being all that was left behind of their people, the Luf. That was until they found the clock tower. It was thought to be a towering tree, but exploring it further showed it for what it was. It made little sense to be there, the locals lived in burrows and hovels, and the loof had moved north in the inlands a hundred years ago. The clock hands didn't move, and what proper engineers remain in the company couldn't agree on what, what to make of the mechanisms and how to make them operate again, or even if they should. In its presence and in the place, time seemed to stand still, and then the minute hand moved. Metal scraped on metal as the clock hands began their orbit about the central axis of the face, the regular pattern of kathunks with a bell toll on the hour, caging the day in its temporal prison. Forget the sun or the moon. This machine ruled here. On the dawn following the clock tower's return to life, above a fruit-bearing apricot tree, one of the engineers was found impaled on the hour hand, and in his blood was written, From his body was born doom. Please, everyone, go to sleep. I've got that the locals warned us about, about haunted smoke uh, and said, hey, you shouldn't, 
set your dead bodies on fire. And then we did it anyways. So I'm convinced the smoke was haunted. I am wondering, shortly after that happened, we had dead bodies walking around. I don't know if that's the result of our haunted smoke or if we've got something later down the line. I did notice that in this intro, there were a lot of dead bodies to keep track of. We set some of them on fire and then there were more of them that were walking around that we buried. Um, and I did eventually figure out we burned the corpses who were on the evil team, but the good corpses who died trying to defend our expeditionary force, they were kept and we were going to try and bury them at Ravenswood Bluff, but we just didn't get that far because they started walking around. So we buried them sooner than anticipated. One thing was spoken about in chat during this long introduction. Uh, I want to call it out because it's pretty interesting. I think we had theorized this a little bit during game two. We hadn't noticed all three of them, but we had noticed uh, the fact that the soldier was referenced in the introduction of game two, and the soldier was originally going to be a demon bluff. Other than the fact that the soldier was on the script, there was no apparent reason of why the soldier was mentioned during the intro of game two. In the intro to game three here, there's a couple characters that are referenced. So chat had noticed that the general had been alluded to in the intro. I think the chef was also alluded to a little bit. The preacher was definitely alluded to. So the preacher and the general were both demon bluffs. Chef wasn't, chef was bluffed in play, but wasn't actually in the game. But there is a couple characters that are referenced. Uh, chef was a minion bluff from Snatch. Kohav had it. There we go. Tyler is dropping hints of the bluffs in the intros. This is a consistent pattern, so we could perhaps meta this in future games. Tyler's on to us. That'll definitely change. He's not listening to the podcast. We're good. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't start. So good call on chat noticing that. I think Ekin called out the, the general and preacher being in the intro. The other thing that I noticed in the intro was the name of the tree. So Tyler mentions an apricot tree in the game intro. One of our whisper channels was named under the apricot tree. And on some of the subsequent days, Tyler mentions on the day intro, the tree that's in town. And the tree changes every single day. It wasn't really called out that the tree tree is there. So you have to actually notice that the Whisper Channel's name is changing. So the trees that we saw during the course of the game are the apricot, then the fig, then the apple, then the pear, and then the cherry. I immediately saw a puzzle here. We got several different trees. This must be of significance. If Tyler goes out of his way to change a Whisper Channel's name during a night phase when there's already a lot going on, there must be some significance to this. And so I tried to find some meaning of apricot, fig, apple, pear, and cherry. I did outsource this a little bit. For those that know me, I'm in the escape room community and uh, I've got some puzzle solving friends and they did notice a significance on each of these words. I don't think it's intentional. I think this was accidental and I'll explain why in a minute, but if you take those words, apricot, fig, apple, pear, and cherry, and rearrange those words, those words have three letters, four letters, five letters, six letters, and seven letters. It's interesting that the, the words increase in size. However, they don't increase in size in order. And the first one is seven. And so there's no way for Tyler to have known. And the second one is three. There's no way for Tyler to have known how many days there were going to be. And so starting on seven would have been risky if that's what he was going for, <laughs> some sequential ordering. I don't think this is significant at all, but I do think it's interesting. Right, this 
Tree changing, but not knowing the number of days means not, not necessarily the specific trees would be important. It's just the idea that they're changing that we may be able to read into. Yeah, I think I have a guess as to what's going on here. There's nothing to show this. It just seems to make most sense to me. Um, I have a guess that whether you used that whisper channel or not is going to be of significance. And so the, the use of, let's say, the apricot tree could put you in like a grouping later. Whereas like if you used the fig tree, you're in a grouping. So I think the fact that you may have used that whisper channel while it was that specific tree type is going to have some significance on future games. I think that's the thing that makes the most sense here. Can you imagine trying to keep track of that? Well, I don't think they kept track of it during the game. I think the fact that it's recorded allowed Tyler to go back and track it after. Yeah, man, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, could you imagine going back and watching the game and analyzing it that detailed? So the Doomsayer ability in this game game allowed us to go back after the fact and track the detail of which doomsays people had done. We could create chains and we could create them over a series of days. So as we get into the, the doomsay here, I can sort of highlight the fact that by day three, we actually knew the entire group of each team. So I will touch upon the doomsays. On day one, there were five chains that happened. We couldn't necessarily get too much from that. Typically of, you know, a Doomsday game, you've got a couple people that you know you can trust. Uh, there actually wasn't a lot of overlap. The largest group that we had was a group of three players, and we had two of those. So there isn't a lot of Doomsday information from day one. But the fact that there was a time loop can allow you to compile multiple days of Doomsdays together. And so using subsequent days, we can now create longer chains. And so I'll touch upon that as we get to each day. I think this is something that's interesting because as players, we're not used to tracking these types of chains. And so it's interesting rewatching this because you can sort of break this down to being, you know, much more informative than it actually was while we were playing. And it definitely is an interesting mechanic, but it's one of those things that once you know that you can track it this way, I think this sort of breaks it. I don't know that this would work a second time because these chains are really easy to find overlaps on. I knew the entire good team, except for Bejbo, basically by following who killed me and who I killed. Um, and I figured out, I think I trusted Alejo as Tinker and might have used some stuff with them. And I missed the seventh, which was Bejbo, despite him being the one to kill me in the fourth loop. So yeah, there's a lot there. Um, so at the beginning of the game, the demon is actually told about the fact that there's going to be a time loop, and they're told that the traveler is going to be significant in the end of the game. So the demon, and by that you know extension, the evil team, they, they have a hint as to what's going on. But of course, the good team has no idea that they're going to be playing multiple games uh, in a row and that they'll be able to compile all of this information. I think that that balances nicely, because when you do say you learn other people that are on your team, typically the evil team knows who each other are, so they don't need to depend on that, but this game has a poppy grower. So when the doomsday triggers on an evil team, the evil team is learning who each other are in the same way that the good team is. Um, and so the evil team can compile that information. And, you know, in the fact that they typically have a smaller team, they compile it much faster than the good team. So the, the Doomsday was helping both teams here, although the evil team was sort of told that by Doomsaying, they are potentially helping the good team get to a situation where they can win the game with the Traveler, or at least that was hinted to. 
in, in an ambiguous way. Uh, night one, the leech chose the Scarlet Woman because they don't know who their team is. Although, uh, based on how this goes the rest of the game, maybe Laurent would have still made the same choice. Typically for a leech, that's probably your worst choice because that's your escape hatch and you just <laughs> you just poison to them. However, it, it didn't necessarily matter. The game was always going to be played multiple days, so it didn't necessarily matter who Laurent picked. It's just funny. The group invoked the Traveler during the first day, and so Kev Kev came back as the Deviant. Didn't necessarily have any impact on the game, but uh, that was the first invoked traveler, and the good team didn't know it at the time, but they needed to invoke a series of travelers in order to get to a state where they could win the game. The players at this point think that this game is working a lot like a day to remember, where you play for a period of time, you do a bunch of doomsays, and then you get one execution to win the game. And so the players, of course, do want to do an execution at the end of the day that they're playing. So they do an execution. The game, of course, ends, and chaos ensues. Um, so everybody is confused when it's announced. The game is, of course, over. Please go to sleep. And everybody goes to their cottages. So this is when all the players learn that they are going to be playing the game again. At the start of the second night, there is a discussion on Traveler's alignment that I think is interesting to pick up on here. Real quick question. Does the Traveler remain the same alignment, or can they change if they're invoked? Uh, so we haven't confirmed that in play. There's a narrative. There may be narrative indications that would allow a Traveler to change alignment from the original player's alignment. And if they did, if they did, you would probably just send them a message letting them know, right? I would indeed. That well, was that go, has chat. been that has been meted to say well they haven't they wouldn't have time to tell them but I can send people private messages and I would in that case the player's alignment could change the way that Tyler would do this is they they would private message the player what their new alignment is in order to let us know that we can't meta the fact that the alignment can change the fact that this was still sort of kept quiet makes me think that we are going to continue to see travelers being reintroduced because mm -hmm. uh tyler left this a little bit open in the air and he wouldn't you know he, he wanted to basically say like hey don't meta this in future games and so it does lead me to believe that we're, we're potentially going to see more travelers uh returning into the game what did he say it was because of like story cues I feel like the Archon being evil at the end of the game would have been ridiculous. So I wonder if Fran could have turned. There's narrative indications that may allow a Traveler to change alignment, is what he says. I was right. Uh, and I can point out narrative indications in, like, the Judge and Archon things. But I'm also not aware of Fran changing teams. So, who knows? Fran hasn't told you that they changed alignment ever, did they? He did not. I did not ask him, though. We know that Kev Kev didn't change alignment because of the doomsday. So Kev Kev comes back to life as the Deviant on day one, and Kev Kev then doomsays. Kev Kev joins a chain. Harmony had doomsayed previously and killed me. Kev Kev doomsays and kills Harmony. So we know that when Kev Kev used the doomsayer at the end of day one, Kev Kev was of good alignment because both Harmony and myself were of good alignment. Uh, so we know that Kev Kev didn't change alignment, but we don't know whether Fran changed alignment because Fran never doomsayed after coming back as a traveler. Came back as a traveler and then the game ended immediately, twice. Uh, so, of course... Game one ends, and during the night between game one and game two, uh, we find out that if we are ever mad about the previous day, uh, we would be executed. So we have to go into the next day not talking about the fact that we've already played this day. 
Now, there are some ways, there's some loopholes around this. Tyler intended for us to figure it out. I think a couple of us did, or I would say most of us, if not all of us figured this out, is that you can just talk about who you trust in order to discuss previous doomsayer loops. So there definitely was a very easy loophole. Some of the roles are a little bit harder to share previous days of info. Uh, so the savant info that we've given starting on game two all referenced time loops. The savant info was impossible to, to share on subsequent days. And if there had been a fortune teller in play, the fortune teller wouldn't have been able to share previous day pings. They can only share their current day pings. So hopefully people are keeping track of the information that the fortune teller is sharing it publicly. You know, some of these roles are, are roles that the day's information compounds day over day. And so using that information at scale is really helpful. And so unless everybody's taking notes on the information, they're not going to have access to previous day's information, which makes that harder. From Pixie, I learned four in-play characters. And I, by like day two or three, made a really active effort to say publicly knowing that after game one, everyone knows that I'm actually the pixie. I made an active effort to say publicly, I am this as early as possible into the game to be mad and go, hey, someone is this. This is a character that we have. That's a good play. Yeah. I think some roles are easier to do that with, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. Now, Tyler knew this going into um, into this second game. And so Tyler has mentioned that Kev Kev's fisherman advice on game two was actually madness proof. Tyler told KevKev through the Fisherman advice that it's beneficial to invoke the Travelers. He did so by saying to get yourself out of this predicament. That doesn't reference a previous time loop. And so KevKev can share that information freely with everybody without worrying about breaking madness. And of course, we could reference invoking the Travelers from game one. Uh, yeah, the exactly. The first legacy game. Yeah, exactly. Which you did. And I want to get back to that in a second. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting about that is that when we invoked the Traveler on game one of this Doomsday loop, we were actually told why the Traveler was invoked. It was based on the fact that the group had dwindled in size. I didn't catch that until I was rewatching. So I think it was really easy to miss that. But we actually had all the tools at that point. So we knew that by doomsaying down to a small group, we could invoke a traveler. And based on Kev Kev's fisherman advice, we knew that invoking travelers is the way to get out of the time loop. So the information was all there. I didn't catch any of it while we were playing. But it is, it is interesting to see that um, that information was given to us in a way that could have probably shared it without breaking madness. Game two ends with Kev Kev breaking madness. This was something that chat was talking about a lot. KevKev had mentioned previous games, and so chat honed in on KevKev breaking madness because there had been the game you know, we had just played where Traveler was invoked. And so chat had decided that that was him breaking madness. Now, you were pretty quick to, quick to clarify that that's talking about game one of Act One, a game that we had played previously that we are allowed to talk about. Chat kept harping on this. Kev didn't even break madness. I did it first. And Kev was like, what? There hasn't been any other game. And I was like, no, the one two weeks ago. Exactly. So Kev got executed for something I said. I don't even think you broke madness because you very quickly specified, oh no, the game that we played. Oh, I did not break madness. But Kev got executed because something I said was misinterpreted. Yeah, I just want to call out. It wasn't out, even a little bit, Kevin. I just want to call out that during that second day, the day ended because there was madness being broken. 
that was never actually broken, especially rewatching it. Everybody was very careful to make sure that, that they were referencing something that was allowed to be talked about and not referencing something that they weren't allowed to be talked about. So I don't think that was exactly fair. And there was no traveler invoked that day, which ultimately hurt us as a good team. So I think the fact that chat was really getting on us about breaking badness was to the detriment of the good team there. Yeah, I agree. Badness was not broken. So day three starts and the judge enters as a traveler due to enough doomsays. So was Fran at this point was uh, the first person that died to doomsayer. That's the person that becomes the traveler and Fran became the judge. What's pretty interesting here is if you were to just track all of the doomsays and compound the loops on top of each other, as of day three, you now have two distinct groups of players. So you have Laurent, Fran, Kohav, Duke, and Madeline in one chain, and you have Alejo, Travis, Kevkev, Wildstar, Bejbo, Andrew, and Harmony in another chain. That is the distinctive good and evil team right there. Savant Info on day one mentioned that there are two players that have changed alignment to the evil team. So if you take the Savant Info from day one and compound it with all of the Doomsayer information that you have at the end of day three, you now can figure out who the evil team and the good team is. I don't know that that initially helps you to solve the game because of the setup here, we have a Leech, we have a Scarlet Woman, you know, you don't necessarily know who to execute, but... As of day three, the Doomsayer information did allow us to actually figure out the entirety of two teams. Day three ends with Travis saying, I'm alive again, which was a madness break, according to Capelli. I didn't I didn't actually catch him saying that either time, so I'm not gonna judge that. I heard it. He was his comment was that he was alive both times we invoked travelers. So yeah. Okay, that sounds fair. So I'll I'll count that one as fair. That Travis broke madness there. Now that we've had two travelers revealed, we've got a good bit of lore. The most interesting thing, the deviant is a deviant. It doesn't do much. And the judge, the game ended immediately after we invoked the judge. But we did get some lore right before both were invoked. That was quite interesting. It The travelers were, of course, traveling. And I... They were traveling to Pandemonium, which is a cave or something. And... They sound a lot like us. There is just constant conflict. They're trying to explore and find this new place, but they're not quite sure what they're doing and they're fighting amongst themselves. And I find that very interesting. I don't know where they came from or if Pandemonium is here in Ravenswood Bluff. And I think that's very fascinating that here we are repeating history. I found it interesting that we have a proper noun Pandemonium and of course Pandemonium Institute created the game. That was the level of my <laughs> observations with this proper <laughs> noun. <laughs> so. Our travelers have names. And I don't know the significance of these names. We have the name Uriah for the beggar, Punchinello or just Punch for the deviant, and Gideon for the judge slash archon. Punchinello is a word that describes like clowns in Italian puppetry. I googled this. And my best guess as to where these names come from is that it's literary in some form. I picked up on this when the Deviant was getting introduced because the word punch, I just thought of Punch and Judy because the Deviant is like a a jester of the court that they would play with like marionettes. And so it made sense to me that Punch was a reference to Punch and Judy. But it sounds like you've found an even better reference. Uriah Heap is a character who 
is notable for being really obsequious and insincere. I presume to gain things from other people. I've never read David Copperfield, but this is what the Wikipedia article says. Um, so it sounds like this character does kind of beg to other people, and I wonder if that is where the name came from. Gideon is a is a Wikipedia article. Yeah, military leader, judge, and prophet. I didn't know that. Okay. Recounted in Judges 6-8, the book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible. So yeah, they're literary references. Okay, so uh, so that's we have two different travelers uh, at the end of day three. Travis breaks madness, saying I'm alive again, and day four starts. During the course of day four, Alejo nominated the self-selecting leech. So if we had all just voted on it, it would have passed to the Scarlet Woman, but we would have killed the demon, the leech. Also a note there, Laurent, the leech, claimed to be the leech right after getting nominated, but suggested we find the host. The leech find the host. Laurent was his own host at that moment. <laughs> we would have killed the demon. It would have passed the Scarlet Woman. I actually wonder if the Scarlet Woman, I don't know, Wildstar, if you know this, but when you're running the game in person, when the Scarlet Woman procs, you don't actually change the Scarlet Woman token to the demon token, do you? I have no idea, but I don't know how you would. You must have to. So in Trouble Brewing, you can, because the game ships with four different imp tokens. Gotcha. And so I typically see, especially with online play, they tend to switch the Scarlet Woman to the imp. Now, that might just be happening because storytellers are making it easier for someone to watch on the Twitch stream, but... You could physically do that. However, the Scarlet Woman has a reminder token that is uh, the kiss icon and it just says demon. So I think what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to put a reminder token next to the Scarlet Woman telling you that that player is now the demon. I don't know how that would work in a game where you have multiple dead demons. Like in Sex and Violence, you could easily have that scenario. And then if you had like a scenario where you have multiple dead demons and a Scarlet Woman, you wouldn't necessarily know what demon they were. That could get confusing. People who have run this game in Person with that sort of setup, I'd be curious how you solve that in your grimoire. Uh, but in any case, the reason why I'm going down this whole tangent is because we know through a clarification that a player asked, when these days reset on each time loop, mm -hmm. the tokens in the center all got removed and replaced, and the tokens on the outer ring did not. So it would be interesting if the leech died and the Scarlet Woman procced, whether that meant that the Scarlet Woman's token was going to change to the Leech, and now there's no Scarlet Woman. Here's the thing, if the Scarlet Woman's token changes to the Leech, we now have two demons and really can't win. <laughs> all right, fair enough. This was all unnecessary. That's a good point. I don't think the Scarlet Woman would actually change to a demon in that case, because, yeah, that would be totally unfair. So Fran was executed due to getting enough votes. Fran was the evil bounty hunter bluffing as chef with a five. And so that starts day five. All players at the beginning of day five were told that this is going to be the final day. All players were asked to choose mercy or vengeance. These choices were largely kept secret. However, for some of the choices, it was caught by the stream because Tyler was in the room with Capelli while the question was asked. So we do actually know some of them. Us as players asked after the fact whether we could talk about what choice we had picked, mercy or vengeance. So these choices didn't impact this game at all. We suspect it will, of course, impact 
select a future game, but it's not really known who picked what. And Capelli answered the question, yeah, you can talk about it. You can also lie about it. So we don't necessarily know the count of Mercy versus Vengeance choices and who chose what, other than the couple people that were caught on stream. I don't think mine was caught on stream. Was. Oh, it was? Okay, I picked Vengeance. Well, sorry, are you going to admit to what you picked? I picked Mercy, and I will... I don't know the benefit to lying about it, so I'm curious. But I will say about it, I mean, lore. I didn't actually realize from what was said to me that these voices were the ones who'd spoken to us the two previous nights. Because Capelli came and gave us, like, hello, uh, I'm going to remind you about madness. And the first time he did it was a dark and ominous voice. And the second time he did it, it was, this is a comfort somehow. Uh, it was very logical. And that was how these voices were introduced. And what I found interesting when we listened to it back, I assumed when I heard the voice of Mercy, I was given these words of comfort. I assumed that good players who chose the voice of vengeance were given, like, angrier encouragement. Um, and that was not what happened at all. The words spoken were very different depending on what team you were on, which implies to me that obviously the choice between mercy or vengeance is significant. Potentially there's some significance to whether or not you chose the optional mining with your team. That's interesting. Yeah. I had thought that it would be something that would, like, Put, I don't know why all of these, I just assume it'll affect some group that you're put in in the future. <laughs> Maybe because I really liked game two in the first act where we were all put in groups. But I just assumed that by choosing either Mercy or Vengeance, you'll be put in a specific group based on those choices. But that would be interesting if it was then subdivided based on what team you were on. That made sense until I listened to it back and the voice of Vengeance became just undeniably, this is evil while mercy was undeniably good because like andrew you got yelled at by the voice of vengeance and kohav heard the voice of mercy and was like yeah i don't care <laughs> that one surprised me so much i was like whoa that was not what i was expecting to hear here because i'd heard the voice of mercy before i think that was the strongest this is leaning towards anything like that was the most evil thing ever it's interesting that you picked up on all of this because I didn't pay attention to any of this. And the reason why I'm going to meta Capelli here, the, when Capelli comes into our cottage and starts doing the narrative of telling us like, hey, don't be mad about a previous day existing. This was the first time it happened. It seemed almost surprising to Tyler that he was doing that. Like Tyler was like, oh, you got a bit of a narrative there. That's cool. It almost seemed like Capelli had just made it up being like, oh, I'm going to write some narrative here. You know, perhaps it was like writing each night of narrative the day before. It felt not the way he was presenting it, but the, the way that they were talking to each other at night, it felt like it was impromptu. Like that had not been planned. I just assumed that all of the narrative around choosing mercy and vengeance was again, just Capelli writing flavor text in the moment. True, but I mean, I know it was deliberately written because like, especially on that final night, he had four distinct planned out messages. We heard three evil players pick vengeance and two good players pick mercy. And they were basically the same in every iteration of the same thing. So that had some thought. And I can't imagine that was Capelli going, I'm going to plan this out right now during this game. Yeah. Mercy or Vengeance choice was known to be happening. 
That's good. That's a good catch, Wildstar. We make those choices. We go into the next day. There's, of course, you know, regular discussion, like like the day goes. We all know this is going to be the final day, and perhaps it's just we we could have chalked this up to many different things. Let, let me throw a couple excuses of why we made a terrible decision here. Final day. We don't know who the demon is. We do think it's a leech. The leech could have chosen anyone as a host. There could be a Scarlet Woman that could make this go on longer. The cult leader win was just seeming more and more likely for whatever reason. All of the good players decide to vote on the cult. The cult leader has been evil the entire game. And so at that moment, the evil team has won. This breaks mechanics of the game because Tyler needed the special new traveler to enter the game. And when we voted on the cult, the traveler hadn't yet entered the game. So we vote on a cult before Tyler announces the game is over. The Archon enters play. Players don't get a choice or anything. The Archon just enters play. Fran becomes the Archon. It was Fran because he was the judge. In the lore, it was mentioned that the Archon was Gideon, who was previously our judge. At that point, we find out that the game is over and the two of us have lost the game uh, due to an evil cult leader win. I would say it's difficult for good to win going into this day with the info we had. Really difficult. Like I said, it was possible for us to figure out who the evil team was with the Doomsayer ability. I don't think any of us did. But even if we had done that, even if we knew exactly who the evil team was, I don't I don't know that we could have won the game there. Because you have to know the Scarlet Woman and the Leech Host. Two things that are very hard to do. There was some discussion at the end and uh, with Tyler and Capelli that they sort of clarified to us because a couple of us kind of stuck around to chat. And, you know, we would have gotten more time. The day would have gone on longer than it usually did. It sounded like the game becomes a normal game at that point. You know, of course, the new traveler, the Archon, has an ability that's going to affect the game. But it sounds like the game becomes a little bit more of a normal game. And so perhaps we had multiple days, which would allow us to take care of the Leech and the Scarlet Woman. I mean, it happens at Final Five, right? So we didn't, we never would have had more right. than two days yeah so the archon comes in we're down to final five and you know perhaps we had a chance to get a perfect pick on a leech host and the scarlet woman so it's a little unfair to say we couldn't have but based on the information that we had and what that game was looking like i think going for a cult leader from our perspective was probably the the better way to end the game because it just seemed so difficult to actually kill the evil team on that day i will say that my notes I had reached the conclusion that Duke had a good neighbor, which is not the best logic I've ever had when deciding to vote on Colts. Yeah, I think I think there was just so much going on in this game that it was really difficult for us to make yeah. logical decisions. And I think some of us were making decisions that we wouldn't have otherwise made because it's a lot to process. You know, you've, you've got to process regular blood on the clock tower. You've got to process a mechanic where you can't talk about previous days. You've got to process all of the Doomsayer information. And then on top of it, it's a complicated setup. So, and then like for for, mm. for for my role in particular, I'm also trying to figure out whether I can share any of my savant information. There's just a lot to think about in this setup. And so it's really easy to miss obvious things with this much going on. It's as if we're all brand new players to Blood on the Clock Tower going into this, just because there's so many new mechanics that we're unfamiliar with. You know, after you play this game a bunch of times, you can sort of like make strategies based on previous plays and such. But here we're just so out of our element, which I think is what Tyler's for you know that's sort of the goal here is that he is intentionally taking us out of Roman so that's by design but I'll just notate as a player who's going through this it's difficult <laughs> give us some slack uh it's really difficult to make good decisions in these things I said either during or right after the first loot that I intended to win the game on adrenaline and I'm pretty sure two hours later that was still my plan 
And instead we lost on, <laughs> on adrenaline. I mean, the adrenaline was probably running out after two hours. That was, uh, that was the end of the game. Of course, because the Archon was in play, the game was able to end, and the evil team won. Uh, as Koav was quick to point out, the evil team won five times. Yep. Ready for more lore? Hit me. Okay, so our final Traveler invocation was the Archon. The first thing Tyler says about this is that it came from one of the spirits that exists in Pandemonium, I think, called Mezephiles. I don't know if this name sounds familiar to anyone else. That is the rename of Mephit, and the Archon was created with the spirit's secret word of power. Gideon, after receiving this Mephit word, seems to be good. He brings the warring pilgrims to this time of peace and prosperity, and once he dies and there's no worthy successor, the society falls into disarray. I'm inclined to believe these pilgrims who were ruled by Gideon are the Luth people, which I believe are our ancestors, and we are returning to our homeland, which collapsed here because something went wrong with the Luf people. And what I also find fascinating about the use of Mezephiles and having that specific tie-in to its ability with the secret word, this means that these names, like Luf, which obviously connect to the script Lausanne Fair, likely has meaning directly pertaining to Luf, that script. I don't know if that's going to lead to a Leviathan, which is the most notable thing about Lausanne Fair, or something less obvious, but that definitely stands out to me, and it also makes me look at this one proper noun that I cannot place, which is Anolni, which is where we, the Loof people went after they left Ravenswood Bluff, and where we are coming from as our expeditionary force. I don't know if that word is clock tower related. I can't think of anything obvious, but to me it feels like it must be, unless it is because this is what happened. This is where we went after we left the land of Ravenswood Bluff and Pandemonium. So at that point, we distanced ourselves from these terms that we as players are familiar with. Impressive, as always, Wildstar. Also, Ravenswood Bluff is a garden, apparently. Uh, so back to our trees. It's mentioned as being a garden several times. Tyler mentioned that there was... Uh, amongst a people that were, were were not necessarily living in any modern dwelling, that there was a clock tower, and it wasn't clear why there was a clock tower. It was as if like this this village was was just fairly bare bones, but there happened to be a clock tower in the middle of it. We thought the clock tower was a tree somehow. Obviously, that's significant because the clock tower is a part of a time loop. Clock tower wasn't functioning, and then it starts functioning. And so that fits the narrative of this game. What meaning do you think there is in the fact that this town is pretty much non-existent except for a clock tower? Do you find any meaning in the fact that this clock tower existed amongst a bunch of trees? The clock tower is magical. It came from Mezephiles, and it's said to have brought time to the garden that is Ravenswood Bluff, I think. It's interesting. I, it seems to be controlling the flow of time in this place, which is obviously how we ended up in this time loop. And the Archon itself is the force that controls the clock tower, the Archon, which is a king of sorts in our lore. So the clock tower is like integral to the function of Ravenswood Bluff, and I believe it is the loss of control of this magical clock tower that caused the Society of 
pilgrims, travelers, whatever, to fall into disarray. So where do you think that brings us in terms of uh, an ending to an Act 2 and an Act 3? What would you predict? Where do you think we're going? The arc of Act 2, and then, if you can venture a guess that far, the arc of Act 3. We have the cavernous halls of pandemonium. I assume are roughly here on the bluff, but we were not given any mention of us in real time seeing caves. This was our past journals of travelers or whatever. So that may be something that's explored. I think the gods of this place, which were mentioned in the opening, we had our expeditionary force believed, oh, the gods of Anolni don't exist here. There are different gods that we must worship. And it was mentioned in one of the traveler things i think the judge one or no it was in the deviant one that they were drawn to find the garden the place where god had nursed humanity in its infancy again i'm thinking that the garden is the bluff it is ravenswood bluff so there is a strong theological element that i think we may explore yes we're gonna have a city at some point i wonder if how we will distance ourselves from this clock tower majorly controlling the flow of time is obviously we've played that narrative. Well, the clock tower is functioning now. So yeah, I don't, I think that, you know, stops any sort of like- We've regained the Archon to stabilize our clock tower. Yeah. I think in Nolni, uh, the place where we came from, the Grand Duke may make an appearance at some point. I wonder if Fran is our king now because he's the Archon. Tapir's uh, suggestion was that when the king shows up, they'll actually be the role of the king. Yeah, I believe that was related to the Grand Duke of Anolni at a previous week. But like now Fran is, I think, canonically our king because he's stabilized time. So it makes sense to me for the next act building up the town around the clock tower. It seems like our struggles during the next one would be establishing a civilization. I think that's where that's going. I would imagine that either we would sort of establish it and then the third game in Act 2 would be at breaking, or I think we establish it peaceful ending to Act 2. In a traditional narrative structure, you have Hero's Journey deciding to go on the journey, and then everything seems to be great right before you get into your hero's darkest hour. And then you've got your climax, uh, where your hero needs to overcome the, the biggest challenge that that they're going to face. And so it could be that act two is leading into the darkest hour. And so act three will be that resolution. It seems like, you know, we're going to be building the village and then perhaps there's something that is terribly wrong within the village and we have to overcome that. And then that leaves us with our finale game 10 of Raven's Bluff in its normal state. And so I think that makes the most sense just from a narrative arc. I definitely like that. To recap, uh, Act 2 would be building the village. And then once we build the village, something has gone terribly wrong with the fact that we built it. And so we overcome that during Act 3. And then that would make Game 10 sort of the celebration of the new place. If we combine our ideas here, I think the story we end up with is... We're building up our civilization, and then we start facing the problems that d destroyed the lives of the travelers and the Luth before and drove them out of Ravenswood Bluff. And we have to confront them, and either we win or we lose. Either at the end of this game, our town stabilizes. I think Act 3 is going to be our town starting to crumble to bits and then the finale we determine whether it is destroyed once again or we can actually 
make it work it, on Ravenswood Blah. Well, more exciting adventures ahead, more things for us to look forward to. I'm sure there'll be even more twists and turns in Game 4. Thank you, as always, for joining me, Wildstar. I think uh, I think this would be severely missing a good deal of literary analysis without you. Hopefully we'll have to peer back for our for our next episode. We're we're back to a to a weekly schedule here. It'll be another episode to look forward to next week. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>